Let's open our Bibles tonight, if you would please, to the epistle of 1 John chapter 2. And I am just very thankful for our study in 1 John, and I appreciate some of you saying that you've enjoyed this as well. It's a really good book for us to study. It's a, a very doctrinal book, which really makes me happy because you know I like to talk about doctrine. But it's also a very practical book, and that's very important for us. We have to have a good mixture of doctrine and practice. And you'll notice the way that the writers of the New Testament write these letters, that's what they do. They start out with a doctrinal statement, and then they'll give us the practical application of that doctrine. And if you remember when we were studying in Ephesians, those, those of you that have been here that long, a uh, couple, couple, three years ago, I kept emphasizing this, that right doctrine produces right practice. And if we have our doctrine right, we are going to do rightly. And uh, we, we find whether we're talking about uh, doctrines here, whether it might be the, the incarnation or whether it's the atonement or whether it's sanctification, that there's good doctrine here that will lead us into good practice. Now, our subject this evening is part number two of the message, hope and holiness. Hope and holiness, and both of those are doctrines. In fact, the first one, hope, will lead us into the second one, which is holiness. And our hope is that Christ is going to return. That's the great hope of a Christian, and we affirm that hope. We believe that it's true, and because it's true, it should produce holiness in our lives. Now, if you'll look at verse number 28, we're going to start here, and we'll read down through uh, chapter 3, verse number 3. This section is all one thought, and it does go together. So we look at verse number 28, and this is actually the outline for these messages. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we, shall have, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure." The outline is in verse number 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. As I mentioned last week, John has so graciously alliterated the points for us. Abide, appear, and ashamed. And so we're taking those three words as the theme of each of the messages, and we're, we're going to show how those three ideas work together. Now, let me just very briefly review with you what we went over last week, and this was abiding in Christ. There is a command here that we abide in Christ. And I think it's very important for us to, to realize that this is stated as a command. And that tells us that abiding is not automatic, uh, even though that we do believe that every person who has trusted Christ is safe and secure in their faith, they are, they're safe and secure in their salvation, and yet we're, we're told here that the means of remaining safe is through activity. That there's something for us to do in order for us to abide in Christ. And that's very confusing to some people because they falsely assume that we must be teaching uh, that this is against grace or that we're not saved by grace, but we're saved by our works. 
Well, we, we wholeheartedly affirm that we are saved by salvation without the works of the law. But we do have many scriptures in the Bible that are like this, just like the one that we're reading tonight that says that we must abide in Christ. Jesus said that those that endure to the end will be saved. And Hebrews said that we must be diligent in holiness lest we fail of the grace of God. And in Colossians, Paul said that our faith must be rooted and grounded so that we're not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And those types of statements are made over and over in Scripture, which proves that our, our perseverance in grace is maintained through righteous activity. Now, again, that's not the same as saying that we receive our salvation by grace, and it's not uh, apart from grace, and it's not saying that, that uh, our works could actually fail and then we would be lost. No, the good works that we do are enabled by the Holy Spirit, and perseverance is God's means of our preservation. Our salvation is demonstrated by the works that we do. And that's what John teaches in, in the 19th verse of chapter 2. Or nine, Yes, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they no doubt would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. And this is the same as what James says in James 2.18. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have work. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. And so, without this perseverance in the, in the faith, there is no real salvation. Salvation is demonstrated by good works. And if you get something that you claim is salvation, and it doesn't change you, and it doesn't produce any holiness in your life, then you didn't get the salvation in Christ. And, and that's really the gist of these verses. Now, if you'll look at verse number 3, which will be the subject of the next message, you'll see this. It says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And if you go on reading down through those next verses, you'll see there that people that habitually live in sin, and yet they claim that they're Christians, are not real Christians. And so you start abiding in Christ by your salvation through grace. And you can't abide in him unless you're first in him. And then when you are indeed in him, you will persevere in the faith. So grace will continue to instruct you, and it will produce in you the holiness that's required to see God. So you're not only saved by grace. The scriptures teach that we live in grace. And if you do otherwise, there is no salvation. And I really don't think it should be so confusing as, as, as it is to many people, because faith for instance, is a means by which God transfers Christ's righteousness to us. The gospel, the preaching of the gospel, is the means by which faith comes to us. Prayer is a means by which the will of God is done. And likewise, uh, good works are a means of maintaining salvation. So God is a, is a God of grace, and that's why John commands for us to abide in him. So none of those, none of those things we've talked about, faith, the gospel, prayer, good works, none of those are done without the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we move on from that to look at the second word that we have in the text, and this is the word appear, and that is the appearing of Christ. And the appearing is the connector between abiding and the last part, which is ashamed. So if we believe in the appearing of Christ, we will abide in him and we will live in holiness and not be ashamed when Christ comes. 
Now, the word appear then is uh, uh, placed appropriately in the middle as the connector because the second coming of Christ is the doctrine that actually connects our abiding in Christ to the holiness that we have. Again, in 1 John 2.28, it says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So this is that great doctrine of the second coming of Christ. Now, most particularly, we have here a reference to the initial appearing of Christ. In our Revelation study, we've been looking more at the uh, second phase of Christ's coming, and we're building up there to the time that Christ is going to reign upon the earth. It's when he does come and he sets his foot upon the earth and he begins to rule in a righteous kingdom. And we look forward to that time because then we know that we're going to reign with him. But John is not right here concentrating on that particular part of it. It is included in it, but he's most concerned with the event that precedes this. And we are living in the great hope that Christ is coming, that he'll come before we die. And so we're looking for the rapture and when we'll be caught up in the air to be with him. So that's our hope. Now I want to show you this evening how that hope is realized. It's realized in three ways. First is the expectation of his return. And I want to emphasize this to you that, that the hope of Christ's return is not a shaky maybe or maybe not type of hope. And sometimes we speak of hope in that way, such as I hope for a new job. And that means that, well, we're not too sure about it. We might get it and we might not. It would be great if we do, but there's no guarantee. We just have a hope and there's some doubt that's involved in that. But when the Bible speaks about hope, a Christian's hope, It never speaks of it in that way. Our hope has a promise attached to it. And the promise comes from God himself. That's the foundation of it. Paul wrote in Titus chapter 1, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Now, that's a, that's a very interesting statement because the promise was established by God, but it's not a promise made directly to us, it's not a, or a promise that's made between us and God, but this is actually a promise made between God and God. What we're talking about here is this eternal covenant between the Father and the Son, that the Father would give eternal life to those that he gave to the Son. And that's further explained in John 17, if you want to read that a little bit later. But Paul states that this is a benefit of the elect of God. Now, that's an amazing thing that we have so many verses that speak of this, uh, that talk about the elect before the foundation of the world. And yet, uh, for certain people, uh, the doctrine of election is very difficult for them. But the Bible teaches that there are certain people that are chosen to eternal life, and that means they're chosen to salvation. And yet, with all the Scripture that we have, there are many people that deny the doctrine. But what I emphasize here, though, in particular, is the promise. The promise that's made between the Father and the Son. It's a God-to-God promise. And that has to be an unshakable promise, because if it's not, you have God the Father lying to his Son. And we know that God can never lie. God would never do that. And so that makes the promise incredibly strong because it has this double security that goes along with it because the promise is made from God to God. And that's why our hope is such a sure hope. God has backed it up by all of his attributes. 
And if that promise is not true, then not only is our salvation in doubt, not only is salvation at stake, but also the very fact that God is, is existent, his existence is at stake because he cannot be God and lie. That's further stated for us in Hebrews in this way. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things at which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil whither the forerunner for us has entered, even Jesus, made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that is a really a, a packed, chalked full, packed passage of Scripture that we've just read there. But what we need to draw out from it right now is that our hope is in Christ and that God cannot lie. And God confirms that in two ways. He stated it in his word. And that's good enough for us. I mean, just the fact that God said it, that would be good enough for us. But God went even further than that. The Scripture says that he confirmed this with an oath. God gave an oath about it. So our hope is so sure because it's anchored in heaven. It's in Jesus Christ, anchored to a solid rock that cannot be moved. So the hope that we have is a sure expectation. It's never spoken of in terms of doubt that it may or may not happen. Now, interestingly... Or it should be an interesting point to us to, to look at the Scriptures and see how often that the promise that Christ will come has been made. In one form or another, the second coming of Christ is spoken of in the New Testament in every book except Galatians. There are 260 chapters that are in the New Testament, and the second coming of Christ is mentioned 318 times. And that shows that the Bible puts emphasis on that. We, we know that Christ is coming back. And if we're students of God's Word, if we do much reading, we're going to come across this doctrine often, and we're constantly going to be reminded of this, that Christ is coming back. And so we see Paul, when he writes about it, he calls it the blessed hope. Peter refers to it as the living hope. It's called a better hope. It's spoken of as rejoicing in hope. And so it is a very highly prominent doctrine. But it's not just doctrine, because it carries with it that practical application. It's not like what we do, well, we've learned a doctrine, and so now we walk around with our head in the clouds and, and wait for Christ to come. No, the doctrine is given in this epistle as, an, as a passionate incentive, incentive to our holiness. So righteous living is produced out of the doctrine. And if you know this, and if you have the hope that you, that you will abide in Christ and you do abide in him, then you know that you're not going to be ashamed at him when he, uh, of him when he, uh, before him when he appears. And so surely this, that, that suddenness of it, the, the expectation of it, the imminent nature of Christ's return would cause us to be looking for it. Now that's what the Bible actually means when it speaks of us looking for Christ. I don't want to reveal too much of the next message, but when the Bible speaks of looking for the coming of Christ, it means being prepared through holiness. And so it doesn't mean, well, you need to look for the coming of Christ, and so you go outside every day, and you stare up into the sky and see if the clouds are going to part and if Jesus is going to come back. That's not what it means to be prepared. You are prepared through holiness. You're prepared for, uh, for this by living a righteous life. 
And people that don't live a righteous life and don't live in holiness are not out there literally looking for the coming of Christ anyway because they're living like he's never going to come. And that's why you have so many Christians that get involved in all their their unholy activities. They're living like they're not looking for Christ. So hope is realized in the expectation. It's a sure expectation, not a faint glimmer of hope that, that contains some element of doubt. Now, the second way that we realize this is the visualization of his return. Now, there are some who have the doctrine that Christ has already returned. They're not looking and haven't looked for any kind of visual aspect of Christ's coming. They think that it's a spiritual thing. And so there are some people that believe that everything that we read about in the book of Revelation has already happened. Everything except us being in heaven, that's already happened. Now, that's not a new problem. Paul addressed it in 2 Thessalonians, and you're familiar with that because we looked at it when we were speaking about the Antichrist. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there's very clear teaching about the rapture, but when you get to 2 Thessalonians, it appears that those people were having a problem with it again. And there were some of them who thought that they had missed Christ's coming, and they're actually living in the tribulation. And Paul explained, it can't be. It can't be because the tribulation time is a period characterized by the coming of the Antichrist. And since they hadn't seen that man, the man of sin has not been revealed, then they couldn't be living in that, last, that part of the last days. But we go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul speaks of it in the first, uh, first, uh, the first time. He says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So you can't get any more visual than that. God's people will know when this happens because they're going to see it. And I think the jury's still out about whether the rest of the world is going to see it. I, I tend to believe that nobody is going to know when Christ comes back but his own people. They'll see the effects that Christ has come back, but they won't actually see him. But when he comes back in the second phase of his coming, then most definitely all the world is going to see him because then he's that rider on the white horse that we see in Revelation 19. And he comes out riding with his armies and all the world is going to see him then. But there is doubt, there is no doubt rather, that that Christians will see Christ when he comes the first time. And he comes to take us up and we will ascend into heaven uh, with, with him, and, and he's made that promise to us. When, when he left this world, we can read the word, the word the angel said about him. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said... Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So the angel said, you'll see him when he comes back. And the angels ask here, why do you stand now gazing up into heaven? And what that actually means is why are you looking towards heaven as if you've lost him? You haven't lost him because he's coming back. And when he comes back, you'll see him just like he went away. Now, John says the same thing in our text. It's going to be visual. 
in chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He shall appear, and we shall see him as he is. Now, that, that's a great hope. You know, there's many things that I'd like to see. When we went to Israel... Uh, my eyes and my mind, uh, I mean, I was just captivated and filled with wonder looking at all the places that I'd read about in the Bible. Now, I'd like to go back there. I'd like to see some more of that. There are other places in the world that I'd like to go and see some things, and I hope that before I die I'm able to do it. But what Christian would trade anything that we see here for a glimpse of Jesus? In Israel, we saw the place where where. Uh, places where Jesus walked. I I saw the sea that he calmed. I saw the river where he was baptized. I saw where many people, probably wrongly, think that he was born. I I saw the cliff that they tried to throw him off in Nazareth. I, I saw where he preached the Sermon on the Mount. And I saw where the temple was where it stood that he cleansed. I saw the garden where he prayed, and I, that place where he sweat those great drops of blood. I saw the place where they beat him. I saw two places that they claimed that he was buried, and I saw the place that he was crucified. And I saw the Mount of Olives where Jesus is going to come back and stand, and he's going to divide that with the great earthquake. I saw all of that, but he wasn't there. And so I would gladly trade everything that I saw just to get a look at him, just to hear his voice, just to be able to step one time inside the pearly gates. I'd give it up all, give all of it up just to be able to see that. But I know this. I will get to see him, and I will get to hear him, and I will go through those pearly gates in heaven because I believe it's all going to be visualized. I believe everything that I read in Scripture, everything that we see here, everything that we know about Christ, everything he's promised, I believe all of it is going to be visualized. I will see it all because I'm a child of his. As the songwriter said, he's fairer than the lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey out of the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead. So I'd rather have him than all of those things. So Christ will appear. And if you truly do believe that, you'll be changed by that hope. I mean, how could you not think that that seeing him, hearing him, being with him, how could you not be changed by that? Now, thirdly, we come to the glorification in his return. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. Now, do you know that that is actually the motivation for Adam and Eve and their sin against God? It seems like a very strange thing. I mean, something as sublime and holy as this was actually the motivation for the first sin. Satan appeared to Adam and Eve, and of course his appearance was nothing like the Son of God. He appeared as a serpent, and he told Eve that if she would eat of the tree, that she would be like God. And instead, they became so unlike God that everything that is God or is not God, I should say, became a part of them. Sin and sickness and jealousy and hate, pride, death, all of that they got, and that's nothing like God. And so they grasped at that counterfeit. 
Satan is a great counterfeiter of God. He put out the counterfeit, and they grasped at that. And, and what Satan puts in front of us is nothing but a facade. That's all a charade. It's like, it's like putting a cloth over the hole that leads to hell and asking you to step over it. But John gives us here something that's much better than that. It's not the counterfeit. He says, we shall be like him. And once again, this is that great doctrine of Scripture, glorification. Now you think of all the great doctrines that, that are given to us. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. He says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So there you have great doctrines. You have predestination, intellectual, effectual calling, and justification, and glorification. And the hope of all of those is so sure that Paul speaks of those in the past tense. Your predestination is to be called by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, then to be justified by faith in him, and then to be glorified in response to his eternal promise. And you know what's happening to you right now? You are being prepared for that. The Holy Spirit is working in you now, and he's purging you of your sin to be prepared for it. Colossians says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So you're being sanctified right now. You're in the process. Now you're, you're, you're saved in order to remove the guilt of sin. And you're living, you're a living sacrifice so that you can be delivered from the power of sin. And then the Word of God promises that one day you are going to be delivered from the presence of sin. And that is our glorification. Your body is going to be changed. The vile body is going to be changed to be like the glorious body of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about that body. If you read the uh, last part of the 15th chapter, it tells us there of a, of a different type of body that we'll have, a body that's incorruptible, a body that can't die. Uh, we don't know the composition of it, but it's a body that's fitted for heaven. And somehow, it's going to have all the characteristics of Christ's glorified body. Now, I like to answer questions, but this is one you don't want to ask me, because this one's way too far above my pay grade. This, this is about as much explanation as we find in scriptures, what we read right here. And I think the reason for that is obvious. We are simply not equipped to understand what this body is going to be like or what it even means to be glorified. We, we don't really understand what that glorification is all about. Now, Peter, James, and John, they saw a glimpse of Christ's glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, but there's none of them that says very much about it. Uh, Peter said only this, we heard the voice of the Father. And he didn't describe Christ's glory. John spoke of it, and he said, we beheld his glory. And that's the entire statement. There's no explanation of it. Paul was surrounded by the glory of God when he was on the road to Damascus. And all that Paul said about it was, well, it was a bright shining light above the brightness of the sun. And then Paul was caught up into heaven. And when he realized what had happened to him, he spoke not one word about what he saw. And that's because we can't stand in God's glory. No one is able to explain what God's glory is. It's simply too much for us. Now, I've had questions about books that people write where they claim that they died and they went to heaven and they came back. But that's all a bunch of nonsense. Um, 
If Paul couldn't say a word about what he saw, how could anybody else, anybody else say anything? And if that did happen, and if somebody actually could die and go to heaven, they would be as mum as Paul was about it. Now, can you imagine somebody writing a book about it? Like the fellow who wrote 90 Minutes in Heaven. And his book, if, he really, if it really did happen, he'd have a book filled with blank pages. And it starts out, I died and I went to heaven. And 400 pages later, all of them blank, it ends, and I came back to life. And that'd be it. Well, who's going to read a book like that? Our minds are incapable of understanding what's in heaven. Human speech can't describe it. And that's why nobody tells us what Christ's glorified body is like. And the guy that wrote 90 Minutes in Heaven, he talks about all the people that he saw in heaven. But there's nobody in heaven that's not glorified. They, they haven't received their glorified bodies yet, but their spirits are there in glory. And Paul never talked about any of them. So how could he? And then there's another point to John's argument here. Who, who could even stand to be in heaven without a glorified body? A person dies and goes to heaven, then comes back. How could you even stand to be in heaven without a glorified body? You could never enjoy it. How many of you like to sleep? Admit it, some of you. How many of you like to sleep? You know, I like to sleep. I can't do this like the young people did on New Year's Eve. I'm not going to stay up all night. I mean, uh, just a few hours beyond bedtime, I'm toast. So I'm not, I'm not going to stay up all night. But in heaven, there's no sleep. There's never any night there. You know, when you get ready to go to bed at night, you, you start thinking about things that you're going to do the next day and make some plans in your head, and then you drift off to, drift off to sleep. And you wake up the next morning, it's like a new beginning. Everything's new. But in heaven, there's no sleep, so there's nothing new. You sure wouldn't want to be a gossip in heaven. You know, a gossip lives to tell something new on somebody else or some information that they've got. What are you going to tell everybody? Everybody already knows everything. Can't be a gossip in heaven. Everybody has perfect knowledge. You know, I made a comment when, when Brother Grant, at Brother Grant's, um, at his uh, memorial service, I, or in the bulletin article or something that I wrote, I said, if they swing hammers in, hev- in heaven, Grant will have one in each hand. And, and that was just my anthropomorphism. Because can you imagine what Grant would be like if he went to heaven in his natural body? Here's a guy who's busy fixing things all the time. That's what he lived for. That's what he liked to do. But there's nothing in heaven to be fixed, nothing for him to work on there. If they took that old blue pickup of his to heaven, he wouldn't have any tools in it because there wouldn't be anything to fix. So he wouldn't enjoy heaven. Then I think about me. Would I enjoy heaven in this body? Well, I like to study the Bible, and I I just love to read Scripture and find out some new nugget of truth or something I didn't see before, and I come here and I preach to you and I tell you about it. But what if you already know all those things? What am I going to tell you? So what good am I when I get to heaven for you? You already know everything. So you see what I mean? We're not able to comprehend heaven. We wouldn't be able to stand it in heaven unless we're changed, unless we have a completely different body. And we're going to be given a body that works differently than it does here. We have a glorified mind in heaven. It's equipped for heaven. And the great thing about it is that it's so far beyond anything that we can possibly imagine that we just don't have any frame of reference at all to say much about it. There's no way that we can talk about heaven and do it justice. We just can't understand it. And then there's another thing about heaven. I'll just mention this as I'm closing tonight. I love basketball, but there's not going to be any basketball in heaven. I mean, how much fun would it be to have every shot go in? 
There's no walks. There's no fouls. There's no turnovers. You play to 100, and everybody scores 100. Every basket goes in. Everybody wins. Everybody's team is number one. I mean, I couldn't live in a place like that. I can't live in a place where Duke is always number one and, and Kentucky's always number one and Kansas is always number one. I probably won't have to worry about Duke. They won't be there. But the others, you know, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't live like that. And I, wouldn't, I couldn't live in a place where the 49ers are always winning and where, and where the Pittsburgh Steelers are always winning. I, there's not going to be sports in heaven. We're not going to care about those things. But we do expect Christ will come, and we live in the sure hope that he will. It will be visible. We'll be given a glorified body. We're going to be like him because we'll see him as he is. And if you truly believe that, uh, John is telling us here, if you truly believe that, then you will be changed by that hope. Now, the next message, next time, we're going to get into that third A, which is the word ashamed. Abide in that hope that Christ is coming again, and then you won't be ashamed when he appears. So we'll talk about holiness in the, le- in the next message, not being ashamed when Christ appears. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we're able to spend in your word tonight, and we just thank you, Lord, for the sure hope that we have, the great promise that's been made that you are coming again Lord, we live in that expectation. We live in the hope of it, a sure hope that you will come and take us out of this world where we can be with you. Uh, We thank you for that. Bless your people tonight, and we appreciate so much those who have come to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.